You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, um, like I say, we finished up the uh, evangelism consideration, and today I have kind of a buffer. I used to call them buffers, where between things. So this is a this is a catechism question that we um, recite often together. As a matter of fact, we're going to do it today. And I just thought it'd be helpful, perhaps, just to look at this one and consider what we're actually confessing when we do it together in public worship. So with that in mind, let's open with a word of prayer. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're grateful that we can do so in the name and by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God, a God who is slow to anger, who we're told abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we need that and we pray that... Through Christ and by your Spirit, you'll help us today to consider and appreciate more clearly um, this question. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure you're all familiar with this. It's the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. Just as some preliminary, the Heidelberg Catechism was made in 1563. So it's been around for quite a while. It stood the test of time. It was written originally in Heidelberg, Germany, which is why the name is Heidelberg, of course. Elector Frederick III was consciously reformed in his views, a German elector. And so what he did was ask the faculty at the University of Heidelberg to write a new catechism that might unify the region in terms of the Reformed faith. He wanted to implement this faith that he had found, that he considered so robust. And the primary author of this catechism, as scholars have discovered, was Professor Zacharias Ursinus. Now, Caspar Olivianus was is often coupled with him. I think he might have uh, edited some of it or looked over some of it, but this was the primary author, and he actually has a commentary on the catechism, which is very good. I should have finished that beforehand. The final draft ratified by a synod in Germany in 1563, it contains 129 questions divided into three parts. And the structure follows the pattern of Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's been famously summarized as guilt, grace, and gratitude. It lays out our guilt, the need for salvation. Then it develops the whole idea of redemption in Christ Jesus and the bulk of the questions you can see there with grace. And then finally, it shows that our expression of gratitude is obedience and it deals with that. So guilt, grace, and gratitude, it's a wonderful structure. It affirms that the scriptures are the ultimate authority for the church's belief and practice as well as our own. So it's the word of God, which we have seen as well in the Westminster Standards. It teaches that, this is just preliminary historical stuff, we're going to get on to the catechism question. It teaches that good works are the response to saving grace, and the church is for spiritual training. So good works are not in anticipation of or earning 
saving grace. They're the response to. If God works in your heart, the natural and inevitable response will be grateful obedience. And that was important. That was one of the hallmarks of the Reformed understanding. The church is for spiritual training. That is the primary agent of making disciples. What happened was the Reformation in Heidelberg lost some steam, but this catechism, thankfully, was embraced in the Netherlands, the Dutch. So there we go. If you're not Dutch, you're not much, according to Van Drunen. (laughs) That's where it took root. That's where it became a cherished spiritual guide for generations of Christians. It's still cherished to this day, and we cherish it. We don't read through the whole catechism, but we do recite number one. It's probably... In my estimation, I do think it's the finest question and answer in any catechism. I love the Westminster. That's my catechism of choice. But this question is marvelous. The Dutch further divided this catechism into 52 sections so that churches could consider one section every week of the year. And you would find in many Dutch churches, they'll still preach on the topics of each of these catechism questions. 52. So every Sunday is covered. By the end of the 16th century, most German and Swiss Reformed churches had adopted the catechism. The Synod of Dort then later on made it part of their three forms of unity. Maybe you've heard of that phrase, three forms of unity. That's what the Dutch subscribed to. So we subscribe to the Westminster Standards. Confession, larger catechism, shorter catechism. The Dutch subscribed to the three forms of unity. Um, The Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and um, what am I missing? Jason, what am I missing? Belgian Confession. Thank you. Thank you. So, any questions on the historical stuff? Okay. Let's look at the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Very important question. The answer given, of course, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins, past, present, future, and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, or therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. There you have that grateful response to the work of grace. It's the Holy Spirit who makes me heartily willing to obey the Lord, makes me ready to follow his commands. In response to his grace, it's what, what did Augustine say? Lord, command what you will and give me the grace to do it. Because <laughs> I won't do it if you don't. And so by highlighting comfort right up front, the catechism assumes the estate of sin and misery. There is that assumption behind this question and answer. Why would I ask for comfort if I was not in misery? As descendants of Adam and Eve, we live in a sin-cursed world. And we have sin-plagued, guilt-ridden natures. That's who we are by nature. Exiled from paradise, you and I, as sinners, must now endure the dangers and the hardships of a difficult, fallen world. That's why we need comfort, every one of us. It's not as bad as it could be. God has restraints upon sin. It's not as bad as it should be. 
He could have justly destroyed us and sent us to hell at the very first. He's mitigated evil in this present evil age. So if somebody ever says there's a hell on earth, they have no idea what they're talking about. The goodness of God is still on display. He's established government. You may not like it, but it is a wonderful thing. He's not left us to anarchy. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, right? We find out what happens when that takes place. He confused the languages. He divided the nations. That's a good thing. It's a merciful thing. So that sin can't cooperate in the way it did at the Tower of Babel. And he reduced the human lifespan. Um, just think, if you're an unredeemed sinner living 900 years, how much sin can you commit? That's a lot. So God did mitigate and has mitigated the evil in this present evil age. And yet still evil exists. It often prevails. There are countless forms of misery plaguing the human race. Turn on the news. Look at our own families. It's a very difficult place. In light of all this, we are in need of comfort, something good in opposition to things evil. And this is one of the wonderful things about this question and answer. In contrast to the many counterfeit comforts in the world today, we find genuine comfort. And the question is going to teach us. So any questions on the question right now? Any initial thoughts? Okay. Good. There are some counterfeit comforts. You're not going to find true comfort in the way you feel. Oftentimes, this is the way we're taught. If you feel good, it's comfort. If you feel bad, there's no comfort. Comfort based on feelings will ebb and flow like children toss to and fro. This is one of the reasons why the church has the ministry to train us not to be like children who are tossed to and fro, who are governed by their emotions. Follow your heart, as we've said so many times, is a slogan that I think catches the spirit of this age. Thank you, Oprah. Trust your gut. Go by your feelings. Pursue your passion. You know. But if you say something like, do your duty, <laughs> that's anathema. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You'll never find true comfort in the way that you feel. And this is important for us as Christians to learn, and we're all being trained in it because we're all influenced by the way we feel. We're not robots. We are emotional beings. God made us that way. So we learn. Feelings are good things. They're God-given things. But they're things that need to be governed by our faith. True comfort's not found in the decisions we make. The power of positive thinking is no true power at all. It doesn't change our state or our condition or our future. A decision you made 10 years ago at the Billy Graham crusade, although a wonderful thing. I'm thankful for what Billy Graham did. I'm not in any way disparaging that. I'm just saying, you made a decision 10 years ago that has no bearing. It's what you're doing today. Decisions made years ago may be wrong, may have no bearing on the state of our hearts or lives today. We look at Hebrews 3. We are his house. This is where the, the letter of Hebrews, it hinges. He's talking about the superiority of Christ. And he gets to the, this part of chapter 3, and he says, look, we are his house if, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, if we're persevering today. So our assurance of salvation is based in part upon our continual perseverance. 
And that's not trying to put rocks in our pack. That's just saying um, the Spirit enables us to persevere. God tells us he's going to preserve us. That's one of the indications of true grace at work. So true comfort's not found in decisions that were made. It's the life that's being lived now. True comfort's not found in the experiences we go through. The wicked spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. Their experience is pretty good. Life is good. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in prison, I might add, and the prisoners were listening to them sing. Nothing can take away their joy. The circumstances made no difference. So you're not going to find true comfort in experiences. It's not the way you feel. It's not the decisions you make. It's not the experiences you go through. It's not the things you possess. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your comfort. I think uh, Nate preached, was it last week? I think it was in the evening. He recently preached a sermon. I think because, yeah, it was in the morning. And James. And talking about, uh, woe to you rich. You've been saving up your wealth for the day of wrath. The idea is that the rich, even though they possess all these things, they have no true comfort. It's not true comfort. They can have, a, uh, they can have enjoyment for a season, but it simply aggravates guilt. Any questions on counterfeit comforts? Okay. Okay. Well, for comfort to be genuine, it has to exceed the magnitude of the evil. Now, we're in the midst of evil. It's a wicked and perverse generation in which we live. There's evil within our own hearts. There's evil within our own communities in this world. So to have comfort, it's got to exceed the magnitude of the evil. And, of course, the greatest evil is sin and its misery. And for this, there's only one remedy. It's not the pleasures of the Epicureans who say, eat, drink, and be merry. This is, again, some of those false comforts. It's not the fatalistic fortitude, resignation, and indifference of the Stoics. Just stiff up our lip. Pull yourself up. Push through. It's not the nirvana of Buddhism or the Brahman of Hinduism or the Ren of Confucianism. These are all false religions. The only comfort in the midst of a, the greatest evil is salvation in and by the Lord Jesus Christ, as the question teaches. Other religions and philosophies may claim to provide a remedy, but nothing else can do the job. To the trials of life, even in the face of death, he alone is able to give comfort to the believing soul. Nothing else. There's only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. It gives comfort that calms the soul. It satisfies the conscience. If you've ever had a guilty conscience, you know how important that is. When your conscience pricks you, accuses you, it cultivates assurance. That's comfort. So that whatever's happening in our lives or around the world or in our experience, this can't be taken away. In Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and the expectation, the sure and certain expectation of eternal life. What a marvelous thing. What did you say? To live as Christ? To die as gain? <laughs> it's almost like Paul's like, whatever. The Lord's in control. The Holy Spirit then impresses these truths upon the heart through the gospel to give solid comfort. I love that, that hymn. What is it? Solid joys 
Joyce, you can help me with this. Solid joys and what was the something? Lasting comfort. Lasting pleasures. Lasting pleasures. Solid joys and lasting pleasures. That's it. Nowhere else can you find it. We're beloved by God. We're possessed by Jesus Christ, not the devil. We're possessed by Jesus. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're going to look at each one of the phrases. But right now, any questions or comments on this? False comforts? Okay? We're all tracking. The catechism question gives us six parts. Six parts of comfort. One, possessed by Christ, belonging to Jesus, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Your soul, we get that. Your body belongs to Christ. So that even when your soul is separated from your body and that body is rotting in the grave, that belongs to Christ. And he will not let it stay in that condition. He will raise it up at the last day. I belong to him. You were bought with a price, and that price was of infinite value. Nothing else compares. And so our comfort and joy depend on what we are to Christ, not to the world. It makes no difference what the world thinks. What does Paul say? It's a small thing to be judged by you. My judge is God. We belong to him as a cherished and peculiar people. He says this over and over again. And he laid down his own life, his precious divine life. We can say that because it's united to a divine person. He laid down his life to purchase his sheep. And this was the ransom for many that he was willing to pay. Not that you are worthy in and of yourself. Not that you're valuable. But he thinks you're valuable. That's what's important. I'm not valuable. But because Christ says I'm valuable, that puts worth on me that goes beyond any calculation. Any questions? I'm possessed by Christ. Belonging to him. That's the first thing we confess as part of our comfort. Okay? Delivered from guilt. The debt that we accrued is discharged completely. That has nothing to do with how I feel. Who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. And again, as we said, past, present, future. If you blow it tomorrow, and we will, in one way or another... Yes, your conscience will prick you. Yes, the devil can accuse you. But yes, Jesus has paid for that sin in full. The debt is paid. So you get yourself up, you brush yourself off, you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I repent, let's move on. That's a marvelous thing. Your debt does not accrue. In Adam, original sin, and by our own sins, actual sins, we become debtors to the justice of God. We can't make any payment to that debt. We can't satisfy the demands of justice. Death is the wages. We deserve to die. But the blood of Jesus, precious, innocent, covenant, divine, it's all sufficient to satisfy the demands of any aspect of God's justice. So if you're a Christian, 
There is nothing against you. Who can lay a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it going to condemn? I love the stories of Luther when the devil would come to him and he'd you know, take the ink bottle and throw it at the devil and then he'd say, I am baptized. And his point was, I'm in Christ. Yeah, you're right. I am guilty, but I am baptized. My sins are forgiven. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word means that you appease the wrath of the deity. It's a very personal word. Expiation means you cleanse the sinner. Propitiation means you appease the deity. Many people don't like that word. They, don't think, they think it's beneath the Lord that he would be angry with sinners and need to be appeased. It's a great word. God is angry with sinners, Psalm 11, I think. He, uh, his fury is unleashed upon sinners in eternal hell. But here we find that the propitiation is there for his people. His anger is assuaged. His wrath is appeased. And God is reconciled to his people. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, generation upon generation of Christian or believers had not been punished. Why? The angels are scratching their heads thinking, why aren't these sinners punished? And in his divine forbearance he passed over those sins. Because he knew and had ordained that Jesus Christ would pay the price. And it was to show his righteousness. Angels, look. Look at the cross. There's his righteousness. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So his justice is upheld. His holiness is maintained. His integrity is intact. He doesn't just wink at sin. The debt was paid. Justice is satisfied, and he can justify the ungodly. Any questions undelivered from guilt? That's comfort. That's wonderful comfort. Okay? Possessed by Christ, delivered from guilt, redeemed by Christ, which is spiritual emancipation. We're told in the question, redeem me from all the power of the devil. And as you know that by nature we are under the dominion of Satan. We are in his clutches from the day we're conceived. Because of our, our uh, original father and because of our own innate corruption. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took upon him a human nature. So that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Emancipated, liberated, freed. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. His works include the sins of humans whom he tempts, deceives, and seduces for his own ungodly and wicked ends. Those works are destroyed. Right? He can still tempt us. And because in this condition where it's a hybrid, we still have remnants of sin that we're dealing with, we still choose the evil, but we can choose the good. And his spirit sanctifies us, and we grow more and more able and willing to resist temptation. 
By his obedience and sacrifice, Jesus fulfilled the law. Not only are the demands of justice satisfied, but the requirements of the law are fulfilled. Your salvation doesn't depend upon your performance. God's not going to throw you out just because you fail. The law was fulfilled by Christ. There's that righteousness with which you're clothed. That's comfort, and you're freed from the devil's dominion. You're freed and delivered from sin and misery. So we have this redemption in Christ. Any questions on redeemed by Christ? Rob? Um, the devil's works include the sins of humans. I've heard people say that like the devil's been attacking me a lot lately, or um, in my mind, it's just like my sin is getting better to me. How, how, do, you process, how do you process that? And, how much at fault is the person versus Satan? Very difficult to determine. The question is, how do we discern whether my failure is my own sin or the devil tempting me? And oftentimes it's both. Very difficult to lay percentages on who's to blame more. How, I guess how would you encourage someone when it says, like, I've been, been attacked a lot lately by Satan? Well, I mean, he does prowl around like a roaring lion. And I would say in our culture, the error is probably more toward there's no devil. To underestimate what the devil does and can do. I think in other cultures, perhaps they put too much solace or too much emphasis on that. But in our culture, there's not enough. He does tempt. And he has a whole horde of demons who are enlisted in his kingdom to tempt Now, we can't be possessed as believers, and oftentimes, if you ask me, it's my own sin. But I have to be aware, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God. Well, why would you need armor? Well, you've got an opponent. You've got an adversary who's striving. I mean, he's already got the rest of the world in his clutches. He doesn't have to work very hard with them. He wants the church. He wants you. He wants the precious soul, and he will use all of his ingenuity and all of his schemes to get you, if he can, which he can't, ultimately, but he'll try, which is kind of like strange, isn't it? He's supposedly this brilliant creature. He's so stupid. We were just talking about this yesterday at the Men's Fellowship. He He thought he won at the cross. You know, they're all, yay! And in the very moment that he thinks he won... God defeated him, which is an amazing thing. It's just God loves to shame the devil. I love it. Any other questions? We'll move on. Okay. Preserved by Jesus. We're not just redeemed, but we're also preserved. Our king is faithful to his charge. He is a faithful king. So preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, which includes the Trinity, not a hair can fall from my head. Nothing can happen apart from him. Everything is ordained by God through Christ. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence, and there we have an indication of the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the angel of the presence of the Lord. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So there we have Christ with his people in the wilderness, taking care of them, preserving them, supporting them. 
He not only redeemed them from bondage, therefore, but he carried them along all the days of their wilderness wanderings. And in Hebrews, our generation is likened to the wilderness generation. We're in the wilderness of this world, and he is carrying us as we walk through it. By his power, he supports us, and by his bounty, he sustains us. He bears us up when we are burdened. And he will carry you as the eagle carries her young upon her wings, and he'll always provide you with special care. No question about it. That's comfort. Regardless of what you go through or regardless of what you're experiencing, he is with you in it. Any questions on the preservation by Christ? Okay. Five. Evils are turned to good. Isn't this amazing? Afflictions serve our salvation. They don't take away from it. They don't destroy us. They do make us stronger. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Whatever it is you go through, it's for your salvation. I don't know how he does that. He's an infinite being. He can do it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And the next verse tells us that his purpose is to sanctify us and make us holy and blameless before him. He may take us through some difficult times, some hard trials. But obviously we need those for our salvation. It all serves for our salvation. And when we get in eternity in heaven... And we begin rehearsing all the ways that God prepared us for heaven. It's going to be an amazing thing. We're afflicted in this life. We even die. But they don't injure us. Sting of death is removed. The evil of afflictions is taken away. Our hardships are turned to good. They contribute to our salvation because Christ turns everything to our eternal advantage. This light momentary affliction. And that's unqualified. He doesn't say it's just particular afflictions. It's encompassing all afflictions. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if we keep that in view, set your mind on things that are above, that's comforting. It's true comfort. It's not just feeling. I mean, it's an objective reality that he turns these hardships and afflictions to serve our salvation. Any questions on the preservation of God, Rob? Okay, Jim. (laughs) Defer. So this aspect of afflictions serve salvation is this the aspect of the all that God ordains brings us eventually to a saving faith and then following that would be elements of all this adds to my sanctification absolutely unfollowed by glorification yeah so he he ordains the ends but he also ordains the means to the ends. so he ordains our coming to faith as you mentioned everything that's involved in bringing this sinner to faith in Christ and you can imagine the angelic world waiting on tiptoes. Okay, Lord, there's, we think that's one of your elect, and they're watching, waiting. All of a sudden, God brings providentially all the factors to bear, and that sinner repents, <laughs> and heaven erupts in this thunderous applause, you know. Look at that. 
And then the sanctification process goes on, and then finally they escort him into heaven, and he's saved. And it all ser- everything serves. Oh, you afflicted him with this terrible, terrible hardship. He's discouraged. He's disappointed. What, Lord, what are you doing? The angels are scratching their heads, and Jesus is saying, hey, it's all going to serve for his salvation, because if I didn't do that and restrain him from what he could have done, he never would have been saved. So he turns the evils into good. Rob? Um, as an up-and-coming covenantal theologian, um, <laughs> was there ever a sting to death? Or is it... Oh, yeah. Okay. Can you explain that? The sting of death, the unbeliever experiences in its fullness the sting of death. Jesus, when he was on the cross, endured that sting for you. So he's removed the sting of death for you. So death has been transformed. This is probably the greatest example of this particular point, is that he changes death from an enemy to a friend. But was that so for, like, Israelites during, like, the ten plagues, that's what they were looking forward to as, like, um, the Passover lamb? Absolutely. That would take the sting. That's right, when the, the Passover lamb. So the angel of death, when they... You know, painted the blood on the lintels, and the angel of death would pass over their homes. I mean, death was didn't death didn't invade their homes with the firstborn, but at the same time, they were looking ahead to Messiah. And for those who truly believed in the coming Messiah, sure, the sting of death was removed. So you think about Abraham and Moses and David; they did not endure the sting of death because they were looking ahead to Christ. Who would take it away? Yeah. Melissa? I was just wondering, is it similar to where God ordains our salvation? He ordains the means to our salvation. He also he ordains our preservation. He also ordains how we're preserved. Yes. And he uses our afflictions as yeah, well said. He uses our uh, afflictions in preserving us. He ordains all of this as the way which he has appointed for our salvation. So, generically speaking, the way of salvation is in Christ. You trust in Christ, repent of sin, and you're saved. But individually speaking, your way is very different from mine. We're very unique individuals, and so God will tailor the way of salvation in terms of his providence and your experience to you, what you need. So as difficult as it may be, you know, the hardships that you go through, if you didn't go through them, you can't imagine what would take place. They're they're given by a loving Heavenly Father. And he knows you better than you know yourself. So I'm very thankful. I try to be, you know, for the things that... He has me endure. Um, they're not easy. And I find myself complaining all the time. But in my more sane moments, I recognize that he's a loving Heavenly Father, that Jesus is a faithful king. And this is the job of a king, to take care of his subjects. And he does. Assured by the Spirit, our full persuasion of the truth of these things. Now, this is more subjective. It's really the only object- subjective thing but it's, it's true assurance. It's Holy Spirit generated. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. 
and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. There is this idea that I, the truth is impressed upon my soul and my life shows the evidence of that by some sincere obedience. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You're sealed. (laughs) There's a guarantee. If the spirit enters your heart, you have the guarantee. There is no question. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are children of God. And he gives us saving faith in God's promises, and he produces spiritual fruit in Christian living, and there is this inward testimony to our sonship. So the assurance of the Spirit, and it is infallible. It's an infallible assurance. We don't always have it. It can ebb and flow. But when the Spirit generates that within us, it is infallible. You can know for certain that you are a child of God. Any questions on assured by the Spirit? Okay. Oh, John? Then why at the um, end of, uh, I think it was the end of Sermon on the Mount, uh, no, it was, it, was the, it was another passage Jesus was saying that uh, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, when I prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name for many miracles, and I'll tell them plainly I never knew you. There seems to be, and also the Matthew 25, there seems to be the shepherding, separating the sheep from the goats, there seems to be a surprise at people, even that were, he was talking to Jewish people, surprised the Jewish people that they thought they were Christian, they thought they were the people of God, but they were surprised. Right. And um, Jesus spoke in one place of, of knowing him and the other place of the works that were not done in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats. Um, I'm just trying to figure out there seems to be a, a, and also a way where we can give ourselves a false assurance. Yeah. Um, and Not generated by the Holy Spirit. There could be, there could be a false assurance of, of faith. There's also the prophet prophesying strong drink, which is just the prophet's free. Uh, the, when Jerusalem was about to fall, Jeremiah was, was saying, the, about the idea of false prophets saying, everything is good is going to happen. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a false assurance because Satan loves to counterfeit anything that God does, and he will try. So we have people, and there will be people who sadly will be deeply surprised at the end of time or on their death when Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. Okay, that's a very sobering thing, Lord. How do I know? Well... It's faith in God's promises, not in your works. Remember what they said? Didn't I preach for you? Didn't I teach Sunday school for you? Didn't I do all these works for you? I never prayed to you. I didn't know you. So there's this idea that it's faith in God's promises. It's the fruit of Christian living. It's a life of prayer and sincere worship. And and godly repentance that leads to life, not worldly repentance that leads to death. It's this idea that the Spirit testifies by and with the Word in your heart that you're a child of God. 
And what that exactly means escapes me. But I know it is true that the Spirit testifies that you are a child of God, that you can in good conscience and with freedom and boldness call upon Him as Father. Where the hypocrite can't, he might say the word, but there's no filial sense and love there for the Lord. So yes, there is a false assurance, and that's why we examine ourselves. That's why we say, okay, are you looking at the promises of God? Is there evidence in your life of spiritual grace? Has the Spirit been testifying by and with the Word in your heart that you are a child of God? And that will grow over time. Are you persevering today? I don't care what you did three years ago. Are you persevering today? Does worship mean anything to you? Is the Word of God sweet to you? These are things we ask ourselves, and I think they're very helpful. But that is a sobering passage, John, I recognize. And um, I think God gives those, and true Christians tremble at them. Why? Because we know they're true. We believe the promises. We tremble at the threats because we know God is true. The unbeliever, I don't, I'll tell you what, my experience as an unbeliever, I didn't tremble at the threats. I didn't even think about the threats. I was, until 23 years old, I didn't mean anything to me. So that's one area, true repentance. Any more questions on assured by the Spirit? Very important part of our comfort. Okay? Oh, good. So summary, there are six parts to the genuine comfort of the sincere Christian. Possessed by Christ, to whom we belong as members of his body and bride. Delivered from guilt by the shedding of his blood under the curse of God. He died under the curse of God. Redeemed by Christ and emancipated from the devil's cruel dominion. Preserved by Jesus, who exercises his fatherly care over all of those who believe in him. Evils turn to good as all things contribute to the ultimate eternal salvation of all the elect and assured by the Spirit who dwells within and serves as the guarantee of our inheritance. That's true comfort. In contrast to the counterfeit comforts that we looked at earlier, that's legitimate, well-founded comfort for the Christian. We confess that together. Amidst all the trials and temptations of life, we can enjoy this true lasting comfort as followers of Jesus. Death is a defeated enemy. We can look to the future with bright hopes of a life that never ends. No matter what you're going through. No matter how disappointed you may be. I saw, I, I didn't see the whole thing, but recently I saw a picture of this, this man. Maybe you know who he is. He was born without arms or legs. You know him. What's that? I think so. And it was a meme. And I know he goes around doing um, inspirational speeches. And he said, basically, I'm not about getting angry for what I don't have. I'm thankful for what I do have. Now, here's a guy without arms or legs, right? And he's trying to teach people, high schoolers especially, to be thankful for what you have, not dwell on what you don't have. And the Christian has everything. We have lasting comfort, true joy. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Wasn't it Sproul who said, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. That's the hard part. And it's through fear of death. And he has delivered us from that. Devil was the first sinner. Sin is the cause of death. He leads us into sin. He exerts a wicked influence, and therefore you can say that he has the power of death. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. So the devil doesn't determine when you die. But in that sense in which he was this instigator, he had that power. He terrifies the conscience with the fear of death, and he is the executioner of divine justice at the bar of God. So when God passes sentence and condemns the wicked, it's the devil and his hordes who drag him away from the bar of justice and take them into hell. Jesus so far destroyed him that he cannot keep us under the power of death or executed sentence. We're free. We are free in Christ. That's comfort. Any final questions, Manny? So this was great. Um, so is this comfort, ultimate Christian comfort, um, is it meant to be, to be experienced? And, and if it is, how is it experienced? Because everything you mentioned compared to the other comforts that you contrasted, the other ones are tangible comforts that are experienced, they're felt, they're touched, they're... Um, smell, possessions, <laughs> feelings, sense, right, right, right. So they become concrete. Um, this one, they remain in our intellect and, and, and what we know about, about the word of God. But do you believe that 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 the Lord wants us to also experience us in some way? Sure. And, and how does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. How, this is sort of outside of ourselves for the most part. How do we experience it like the counterfeit comforts? And we do so by faith. It is by faith applying this truth to our, through our minds to our hearts. If it just stays up here, it's not comfort. It's got to be gripped by the heart. And that's by faith. So you have Hebrews 11 with this wonderful chapter. You know, Moses counting the reproaches of Christ better than the riches of Egypt. Why would he do that? No sane human being would say being suffering with obscure people is better than having the riches of Egypt. Well, because by faith, he understood true comfort. These things he embraced in his heart by faith. And I think that's the key. That we have faith in God's promises. Melissa? Communion, yeah, absolutely, by faith. And what, is, what does Hebrews 1 say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the substance, the conviction of things not seen. So you can't see this. It's not like possessions. It's not like my feelings. It's not my experiences. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. There's this, I'm experiencing the substance of heaven even now by faith. So the Lord's Supper, I take that bread and I chew that bread because I know it represents Christ's body. I drink that cup because I know it means the precious blood of Christ shed for me. God gives us this tangible. Isn't that wonderful? He knows we need it. Um, he knows what kind of limits to put on what we need. 
people want to run after experiences all the time, but he gives us this supper. It's a marvelous seal of, of the covenant. Was there a hand over here, I think? Was there was it Rob or somebody over? Oh, John. I was just thinking about the, um, the passage where it says, so we're Christians and we have comfort in being Christians, but then the question of, of actually, as a Christian, doing good works and the motivation for the good works and thinking about the passage of um, anyone who builds, there's, there's no other foundation laid except Christ, and anyone who builds on that foundation with wood, hay, clay, straw, gold, silver, his work will be proved in the final day. Um, as passing through fire, and they'll be saved, but they won't escape. Saved by the skin of your teeth, right? Um, it seems to it seems to indicate that there are many people that are that are Christians and that build on top of Christ, but build with things that are perishable and end up end up focusing their life as Christians on the wrong things. Yeah, that's true. Um, and and that many works that could be done could end up being the not done in Christ, not not the way we, we think we're doing building something, but we end up building something not from Christ. That's right. But from our own. So we have to be very careful. Experiences. We have to be people of the book. We have to know our Bibles, know what God commands, what He expects, how He regulates, and not just go off on our own and build with wood, hay, and stubble, right? We want to build with gold, silver, and precious stones. So there's a sense in which there's a hierarchy, not a hierarchy, there's a, a difference in rewards in heaven. We're all saved, but somehow, by His grace, we're enabled to do things that He rewards because He's a loving Father. And yes, you can be saved by the skin of your teeth, which is why we examine ourselves and know our Bibles. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the true comfort that we have in Christ Jesus by your Spirit, based upon your promises. We ask that you'll help us to experience this comfort by faith and prepare us now for worship, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.